0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, program series uh, to give us all uh, insights into the situation in Palestine and Israel with a specific focus on the realities around the uh, Gaza war uh, between Hamas and Israel. Uh, <clears throat> I serve, my name is Sid Mown. I serve as the coordinator of uh, interreligious relations for interfaith action of Southwest Michigan. And my background is with uh, the Christian uh, faith community. Uh, we're delighted to be able to sponsor this six program series uh, to give us all a greater insights into the realities in Gaza as well as the realities in Israel and Palestine, and to counter much of the misinformation and polarization that is occurring both in the United States and around the world. I'm delighted to be moderating uh, this series in tandem with uh, two colleagues, uh, Naveen Khalil, uh, who is uh, from Egypt, a journalist, and a member of the Muslim uh, faith community. And also with Dr. Larry Feldman. Uh, Larry is a psychiatrist uh, and he is a a member of the Jewish faith community. Uh, The three of us will be alternating uh, our moderation of the six programs that are a part of this series. Uh, next week, Thursday evening, uh, 6 p.m., our program will be focused on the media, whether it's biased or balanced, and we will be having uh, Rumana Hossein uh, from the editorial board of the Chicago Sun-Times as our presenter for that evening. I also want to give a special thanks to Naveen Khalil, uh, who really was responsible for the planning and the coordination of uh, all Guys, six I'll programs be... in our series. Um, uh, this program will be made available as a podcast and also can be downloaded from uh, Interfaith Action's uh, YouTube channel. So it can be used for small group uh, discussions and uh, Uh, congregational uh, educational purposes. Uh, As our speaker is making his presentation, feel free to put uh, questions that you have in the chat or when we move into follow-up discussion uh, to raise your hand. And I'll ask my colleagues Naveen uh, and Larry to help me monitor the chat and the raised hands. You know, I personally uh, follow an annual calendar that has a daily focus on holy men and women. And somewhat coincidentally, on Tuesday, uh, the holy person that was focused was a French priest by the name of Louis Massignon. Uh, Massignon uh, is known as the Prophet of Dialogue. He died in 1962, and his ministry was focused on building bridges between the three uh, Abrahamic, Sarah, and Hagar faith uh, traditions, and very particularly in establishing dialogue between Muslim, and Christian uh, communities, he followed Gandhian principles of nonviolence, and therefore, throughout his uh, entire ministry, was focused on peace building within the Middle East and North Africa. So, somewhat appropriate that the the spirit of Louis Massignon, prophet of dialogue, uh, is perhaps. Uh, overseeing us as we start uh, this series this evening. Uh, Why is Interfaith Action sponsoring this program series? Uh, One, all of our faith traditions inspire us to be promoters of peace and to work for the dignity and human rights of all of humanity. Throughout the past couple of weeks, we have seen throughout the world and here in the United States, uh, Muslim rallies uh, advancing peace. Uh, We have seen the Jewish organization, Jewish Voices for Peace, shut down Grand Central Station in New York with their calls for peace. And we've heard pronouncements from uh, Christian leaders uh, throughout the United States and from the Vatican uh, advancing uh, peace proposals in Israel and uh, Palestine and and Gaza. Uh, Second reason that we are sponsoring this series is that Palestine and Israel and Israel are holy lands for the three major faith traditions that are a part of interfaith action. Uh, Many times I think we misunderstand the conflict in uh, Israel and Palestine as being a a Jewish and Muslim conflict. Uh, This morning I received a report that kind of underscores the impact also on Christian communities uh, in the region. Uh, Saint uh, Porphyrius which is a Greek uh, Christian uh, church, one of the oldest Christian churches in Gaza. It has been sheltering hundreds of Christian uh, refugees, and it was bombed. And uh, regrettably, uh, 19 refugees who were sheltering there died, along with three babies. And it has prompted uh, the... Christian sheltering in that church to organize a very hasty mass baptism for all the babies who are there sheltering with their refugee parents with the expectation that they and their babies will die and they want their babies to be baptized so they can die as Christians. I think a a shuddering insight into the impacts of Christian, Muslim, and faith communities uh, in Israel and Palestine. Uh, Finally, the the conflict has local dimensions here in Michigan and throughout the United States uh, with expressions of hatred and division and actions of violence, uh, efforts to demonize different faith traditions, calling on us to kind of reinvest and re-energize ourselves uh, to promote interfaith perspectives, interfaith dialogue and interfaith action. Particularly important here in Michigan, Uh, the state of Michigan has the uh, second largest uh, Arab population. Uh, among the states in the U.S., uh, second only to California. And the greater Detroit metropolitan area houses the largest population of uh, Arab-speaking residents uh, in in the country. So with that in mind, let's jump into welcoming uh, David Dumpke, who is our presenter this evening. Uh, David has his roots here in Michigan, having served as a legislative advisor and aide to both sides of the aisle, uh, working with elected uh, uh, officials such as David Dingle and Debbie Stabenow, and also with our own uh, longtime local representative, uh, Fred Upton. Uh, David has his uh, BA in history. Uh, political science and Russian studies from Indiana University. And he has his master's degree from Georgetown uh, with a focus on Christian and Muslim understanding. So perhaps uh, he channels uh, Luis Massagnon, uh to us this evening and in, in his ongoing work. Uh, uh, David is the executive director of the University of Central Florida's Center on Global Perspectives and International Initiatives. He was the founding director of the Prince Mohammed bin Fahd Program on Strategic Research and Studies, as well as the Office of Middle East and South Asia Initiatives. Uh, David also is currently the Distinguished Visiting Scholar at the uh, American University in Cairo, Egypt. David, we are delighted uh, to welcome you to this program and we are eager to learn of uh, your insights into Gaza now. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Sid, and and thanks, uh, Naveen, for asking me. Uh, I will say just a couple of disclaimers before I start. First of all, it's uh, about 12.15 in Cairo right now. So I, if I'm a little off, this is well past my bedtime. So that's that's the first thing. Um, the other is you mentioned my background working for for Congressman Dingle and Stabenow and Upton. But really for about 30 years, it's been working for Democrats. I wouldn't want to present myself as completely bipartisan and neutral on the issue. But yeah. Um, we'll start with that and uh say as we look at this situation i'm just going to give an overview of kind of where where it is and i think it's probably best to to answer questions you have um a lot of you are following the news so i don't want to want to give you information you've already heard but I'll i'll kind of fill in what what i've been hearing from from this point of view And the understanding we have to start with is, first, you know, I'm not here to uh, defend the American policy right now or any party's uh, position as this conflict goes on, but to try to explain it. This is, first of all, a very emotional issue. And it's important to keep in mind, as this is discussed, obviously, between people on the street or uh, in, in high policy circles, that people are not necessarily reacting to comments, to news, to breaking events with the coolest of heads. This is a an emotional reaction to any traumatic event, um, similar to events, we the response Americans had after, after 9-11, although I want to be very careful um, to not compare any two historic events together. That is not helpful uh, for conflict resolution, certainly narratives are very powerful things when looking at the situation uh, in gaza and israel right now this this past summer i was involved in a project in belfast working with a faith-based leader uh, gary mason who originally was a protestant minister but who's devoted his life the last 30 years to conflict resolution between the republican and loyalist sides there Uh, This year was the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And one of the the goals of, of my visit was to hear Palestinians and Israelis listen to the combatants from that era talk about the dividends of peace and how you move forward. It was a very moving and memorable experience for me. But a couple of things that are are lasting that are important to keep in mind as we look at this conflict. One is you have a situation when you've had a conflict that's been going on since 1948 or even perhaps before, certainly since 1948, we're talking about two sides who both feel very much the victim. Regardless of how any one of us puts facts together, this is the narrative that people carry with them. So rather than try to correct them that they're wrong and misperceived, you have to accept this is their reality because that's how they see the world. This is similar to this this Irish experience I was telling you about because you talked to former UDF fighters who fought for the loyal side or Irish Republican Army combatants. And they'll all talk about the values of peace 25 years on. But if you scratch below the surface, even to this day, The conflict is still there, and they cling to their narratives. So if we think we're going to resolve the differences between how Israelis see the world and Palestinians see the world, we're not. So let's just accept that. Okay, I I mentioned 9-11, unfortunately, but we really can't make comparatives, and and I think it's been very detrimental to the conversation and the policy process here in the last three weeks when you've heard what happened on October 7th was 10 times or 15 times uh, what happened to Americans on 9-11. These are not the same events. Yes, the tra- tra- traumatic experience may be similar, but Israel is not the United States. Israel is a regional power. The United States is a superpower. That distinction dictates very much what the response is and what the expectations of the world are and what the world can accept we've got to look at what this attack really was about and first of all absolutely in no unambiguous terms we need to condemn uh terror and the death of civilians absolutely um there's no justification for that but we also must realize this is there is a historical conflict that is undeniable here. This is a reality, the situation in Gaza was, had not been dealt with for some time and it was bound to blow up. You had a government in Israel that was particularly right wing, who had half the cabinet members who were openly suggesting and supporting the concept of population transfer, which is really a euphemism for cleansing uh, the West Bank of the Palestinian population, which would give more, obviously, land to the settler movement and to Israel. So there was a lot of things lying below the surface here. It also, October 7th, came about right as there was intense discussion of a possible uh, Israeli-Saudi peace agreement, which from the Palestinian perspectives would have left them further behind with less cards to play for. Again, not justifying what happened, but it's part of the context and you that cannot be ignored. So that's the historical context here. Um, when we look at victims, we need to keep in mind, and I know you're going to have an upcoming um, event talking about media perceptions, but every victim is a precious life. <clears throat> every life is an individual, not a statistic. From the point of view of the Arab world, there's a feeling that Palestinian victims are treated as statistics and Israeli victims are treated as individual, which makes the story much more powerful to audiences. And it's a reality, you you talk, you hear about bias in the media, that's what what, what the discussion is about. Another reality that's become evident is, in recent years, the Palestinian issue has not been on the headline. The Abraham Accords that were brokered by the Trump Agreement completely ignored the Palestinians, brought more Arab camps into the peace camp with Israel, but they, let, they ignored the Palestinian problem. I've just mentioned the possibility of a, this nascent Israeli-Saudi deal. That also would have ignored the Palestinians. But ignoring the Palestinians is not a solution to this conflict. It is, is Ignoring the Palestinians does not give Israel security which is the mission of the United States in being involved in the peace process. Provide Israel security, provide peace with its neighbors, so there can be stability and hope for all parties to have better lives for themselves and their children. Kind of going through a list of some of the realities that, that really need to be faced and kind of are being fought. The other is that international law, even if if flawed and not applied evenly in all cases in the world, must be applied. We have to recognize when we look at this conflict, there is a difference between state actions and the actions of terrorists. And I am not, while we are there, much of the opprobrium is going towards Israel right now and acting in a way. Many feel this with impunity towards Palestinian civilians. This is the same experience the United States went through um, after 9-11, particularly during the invasion of Iraq, when you had some of the same feelings and some of the same criticisms of the United States. A question that needs to be asked is if, Ensuring Israel's security is an American priority, and it, and this is a reality. It is a priority as defined by the United States. What does it mean to be supportive of Israel? Does it mean unconditional support, even if Israel's taking actions which are not in its own long-term interests or in America's long-term interests? This is a question that is coming up repeatedly. It's a question that's been asked within the Jewish community for the last two decades especially, is the direction that Benjamin Netanyahu and others further to the right of him in the spectrum is taking Israel the correct path and should the United States support that path or place conditions on how they support Israel? This is a question that needs to be answered and the time to answer it is now. An ugly reality that has to be uh, accepted and acknowledged. Sadly, and I say this with regret, the Hamas strategy has been effective and worked. Hamas anticipated and in fact relied upon this type of response from a Netanyahu-led government in Israel. It has succeeded in moving the Palestinian issue to the front burner, and it has succeeded in having Hamas be seen as the main actor of the Palestinians on the political stage as opposed to the Palestinian authority, which is recognized by the international community, but has been ignored by Israel. And in saying that, we can also say the Palestinian administration has not delivered peace, which it was created to do, and has been susceptible to corruption, has not held elections since 2005, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still the recognized internationally recognized legal voice of the Palestinian people, and it's been ignored in this. Hamas also anticipated that when Israel overreacted, world public opinion would shift from sympathy towards Israeli victims to criticism towards Israeli behavior. This would place Arab frontline peace states like Egypt and Jordan in a bind, Who had also put the United States in a position of supporting Israel publicly, as President Biden has, while privately urging restraint? The problem with this uh, policy that the Biden administration has employed so far is that Netanyahu, over the course of his career, has shown a priority in protecting the political uh, interests of Benjamin Netanyahu first. He has not acted. Uh, responded to U.S. pressure, except when forced to do so publicly. This was evident since the Y treaty, uh, since the Clinton administration, Bill Clinton administration, has has gone to the present time. What's the U.S. doing right now? So you, you got to think before the 10-7 attack. And unfortunate for Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor who wrote a piece on the US diplomatic strategy that was published on the 7th of October, where he said, the Palestinian front has never been quieter. Um, He's since retracted that and and amended it. But what he was saying, and what has been talked about for years is the United States wants to uh, reduce its commitment to the Middle East, which has gotten a disproportionate amount Of foreign assistance and diplomatic attention, as opposed to all other areas of the world, but especially Asia, which is seen, China is seen as America's growing rival and biggest potential threat. To a lesser extent, but still a greater extent than the Middle East, Russia is still seen as a menacing uh, force to the United States. So the idea that the Biden administration had, which was good on paper, was to try to strengthen peace, uh, an alliance of, of, of peace-minded states. And that included a peace treaty with Israel and Saudi as had mentioned. It also included a new renegotiating a nuclear deal with Iran to eliminate the nuclear threat. So you're trying to take away the most serious threats to the United States, the region, therefore allowing its commitment levels to fall. That's, again, in an ideal world, hasn't quite worked out that way. Now, <clears throat> what we've done since the 7th of October is we've employed what's called what's been now called uh, the bear hug approach. President Biden <clears throat> pulled Benjamin Yahoo close to him, gave unconditional support, but privately whispered concerns, concerns over a number of things. One, that Israel must provide humanitarian assistance to the Palestinians. This has happened with reluctance and with delay on the Israelis' part. Now, um, you're not supposed to use food, water, and energy, uh, or collectively punish uh, civilian populations Um, that very much seems to be the case right now. The other concerns the United States have said to Israel is, first of all, our own experience in Iraq fighting urban warfare is much more uh, vicious, causes much more casualties to civilians as well as soldiers, so make sure you have a clear plan before you go in. There's also a question that's been raised of even assuming The Israeli defense forces to go in and wipe out Hamas easily, which is certainly not likely. Well, who who would fill the political vacuum? That is a problem right now. Hamas clearly is not going to stand um, after this conflict is over in in any scenario. However, someone has to. Israel, uh, Jordan, and Egypt have negotiated peace treaties with Israel. Part of both of their peace treaties specifically excluded them from speaking on behalf of the Palestinians in these matters. Is Egypt, in fact, administered Gaza. It was an unhappy administrative period. It was finally renounced in part as part of the Camp David uh, agreement. Jordan used to have territorial claims over Jerusalem and the West Bank and has renounced those. The Palestinian Authority is the legal entity upon which any deal needs to be negotiated with Gaza, or the West Bank for that matter. Problem is the Palestinian Authority is not popular in Gaza, has not ever had a presence there since they were essentially wiped out in a brief civil war in 2008, I believe. Uh, Many of the uh, old Palestinian Authority leadership from the Fatah secular party are actually in in Cairo. I've seen a couple of them recently. They're ready to go back, but they have no support, and they know it. Um, So one of the questions that's being asked among policy figures is, okay, um, if Israel does this, who is going to fill that void? One scenario that's been talked about is, is, and I use quotes around it, the Mandela theory. There is a Palestinian um, political prisoner who has been in jail for 20 years, named Marwan Barghouti, who is popular in both the West Bank and Gaza. And I'm not gonna, I'm not comparing Marwan Barghouti to Mandela in any way, shape, or form. But the the, the story is again a a someone who's been in jail for an extended period of time retains popularity, is able to be released, and then lead their people. Some see this. Uh, Barghouti or a figure like him as a possible solution. The probably problem is there aren't that many leaders on the horizon. Of Palestinians, Palestinian Authority is led by an 88-year-old Mahmoud Abbas, who is very unpopular even in the West Bank, uh, the part of Palestinian territory that's controlled by the PA. So that's some of the reasons for the for the um, American whispering uh, in Israel's ear the other is a real very real one which is there is an awareness in Washington the longer this conflict goes on the more damage it does to America's prestige Um, America is seen whether you're talking to Egypt Jordan or frankly anyone in Europe or anywhere else America is the only player that has any ability to influence Israel America's role is traditionally called to be an honest broker in the peace. Well, America hasn't really been an honest broker and the Arab states know it. The Arab states know that Israel is always gonna be, um, enjoy the strongest level of American support, which is fine and accepted so long as the Americas Americans use their best efforts to broker a peace agreement. The problem in this conflict is there hasn't been viable a viable effort to broker a Palestinian Israeli peace, which is the core problem in the Arab-Israeli conflicts for 70 years. There's been no efforts, serious efforts to undertaking to solve this in some time, in at least over 10 years. So um, that's where we are in terms of some of the problems. Some of the ideas that have been talked about Israel has floated this idea of Palestinians, the Gazans should go into the Sinai, at least on a temporary basis. Well, let me dispel any one of the notion that that would ever fly uh, for Egypt or anyone in the Arab world. There are refugee Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon that date from the 1948 war that still exist. The right of Palestinians to return, in fact, has been one of the two key issues that have prevented an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement in the past. Essentially, the Israelis do not want Palestinians back in the land that that is now under Israel proper. And they would. so there's a precedent of Palestinians leaving not ever being able to return. Everyone is aware of that in the Arab world, the Egyptians do not want the Palestinians to come and stay permanently. It would then be a problem akin to Lebanon or Jordan or Syria, a permanent one. The other thing is, Egypt does not want to be in a position to once again have to speak for the Palestinians. Palestinians may be Arab, they may be predominantly Muslim and partially Christian, similar to the Egyptian population, but they have a different national tradition. It would be akin to Germans and Swedes who may both be European but have different national stories. It just does not work. That needs to be kept in mind. It's a non-starter. There are also talks about perhaps if Israel does, when Israel conquers Gaza, if it does, before a ceasefire is imposed, maybe an international force would come and take over, which could include US troops, UK troops, French troops, and Arab troops. Problem with that is, That would be a bad situation for any occupying power. It's a recipe for disaster. The U.S. had a similar experience in Lebanon in the 80s, if anyone recalls, resulted in such things as our embassy being blown up and marine barracks being blown up. It doesn't change the situation on the ground for Gazans. It doesn't chart a clear path for a Palestinian political future. And it's just a different occupier. And it's inevitable. Going to cause problems. As for Arab involvement in this, no Arab country wants to step up and help Israel administer Gaza or clean up a mess that it doesn't feel it created. They will, they see this as a Palestinian-Israeli conflict that needs to be solved by Israel and Palestine with American guidance. Finally, I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll just conclude by saying again. <clears throat> We have a very difficult situation that's been in existence for quite a long time. We also have to know, you know, consider what is the best way to, for America to support peace, to support Israel, to support Palestinian people. This isn't a question of supporting Hamas. It isn't a question of supporting sides. It's a question of what are the interests of the United States, first of all. What are the interests of humanity? What are the interests of all the parties? Clearly, any solution is going to require not aspirational hopes for statehood, Palestinian statehood eventually. It has to be clearly defined within a very, very narrow window. It has to be a solution that provides security to Israel, which is what uh, has been needed in all cases. That was critical for clinching the agreement. Camp David, it was critical for the Jordanian-Israeli peace agreement as well. We also need to um, keep in mind, not all parties are playing on an even field. And if we're going to let Netanyahu dictate what the policy is gonna be, it's not gonna be a good scenario for the United States. It's not gonna be a short war. And it's going to pander to extreme elements that have kept him in power. So it's a very dangerous situation given the Israeli political dynamics as well. Um, those need to be kept in mind, particularly when you have a, an a oper- political opportunist as the head of government, as, as Israel does at the current time. I think I could, I could go on, but I think it's much better if this is a conversation. So I'd really um, welcome questions, Sid, if, if you have some of those.
0: Uh, certainly. Uh, let me invite Naveen and Larry, if they want to lead off uh, with Uh, Any questions, Uh, and then we'll turn to our larger audience. Uh, Naveen? Oh,
2: Dave, thanks. I know it's past midnight now. Um, So I was, uh, I mean, I appreciate the perspective you gave us here. I am curious about what is your reading and understanding of what is actually happening on the ground now for Gazans. I believe the number has reached 9,000 dead in the past three weeks. And uh, 1.2 million um, Palestinians have been forced to go south and attacked while they do that. And the no water, no energy, no electricity, no real relief going in. So how is it and why is it that this is allowed to happen? And how much is enough?
1: Well, I, I can only tell you what, I, what I've heard. I've been briefed on a couple occasions by some of the Egyptian side who are working on the um, the supplies into into Gaza. Um, there certainly are plenty of trucks waiting to cross the border. Um, those are restricted uh, by uh, entry as to terms of what can enter, how m- and volumes. Okay. The biggest uh, holdup is on fuel, um, but fuel really is important to run generators and things like that that provide vital healthcare services. So the situation's grim. Only a triples getting in. I think. Fifty-five trucks got in today, which is a slight increase, but it's nowhere near uh, the amount that's needed to sustain the population. So it's 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 a crisis by any any uh, stretch of the imagination. Um, the Israelis claim that that of course are, are claiming that Hamas is the one who's holding up and that they're stealing supplies when they come over. And you're also hearing a lot of stories that. Um, if you you read the media, a lot of stories have been planted saying Hamas itself has plenty of fuel, plenty of water, plenty of food. Whether that's myth or just um, painting um, bigger things on Hamas, what they've done is already bad enough. But if, you, if that paints bigger things, I don't know what the reality is there. I know that the people do not have enough supplies. I also know you're up to about 82 um, UN workers who've been killed while trying to deliver supplies. So it's a real crisis. Um, you saw, you see, the Biden administration is understanding um, that they may not be getting accurate answers from Netanyahu and his cabinet, um, which is why you saw President Biden yesterday say call for a pause to increase have a time period where you can have massive amounts of aid injected. Problem is that's, again, a a temporary step, and it seems inevitable in my mind. Um, Another week of this goes on. Of course, there'll be um, many, many more deaths, unfortunately. Um, but the pressure is going to grow for a ceasefire, and I think eventually the United States is going to have to do it, even if they have to name it something other than a ceasefire to save their own political face. They voted against US- UN resolutions calling for a ceasefire. So, uh,
0: Larry, any uh, uh, questions or comment uh, from you?
1: Yes, thank you for that presentation, um, and thank you for um, talking about some possible resolutions and and why none of them would work very well. What would work? What do you think is a possible solution that could work? Well, I think you're going to have to stop fighting at some point. Um, There's there's a realization. I mean, one thing that that's 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 difficult, of course. And again, you you do have to look at the experience of fighting um, entities that are built as uh, terrorist organizations. It's hard to beat an ideology, um, especially when the collateral damage is so high. Um, so that's got that that's got to be reality in this. I think what it's going to take is an agreement to get a ceasefire that has a solution. There are so many plans out there, Larry, that have been developed over the years. Okay, um, I talked to. Um, one of the U.S. architects of the post-Oslo period peace between Israel and Palestine. And he was the one, for example, they the U.S. built an airport in Gaza, opened a port there, tried to get the economy running. You have to have jobs for people. Um, the, one of the biggest problems with Gaza, you had unemployment, depending on how you read it, of up to 75%. That's not a scenario that's going to work. But add to that the, on the, you know, there was really no opportunity for a state coming, in fact, less opportunity. You so you have to have a plan to create a state, two-state solution. How you're going to get security for Israel? Because really, if you don't solve that problem, you're not going to solve Israel's security problem. It's just not going to happen. So it's going to require <clears throat> international commitments. And it's going to require ceasefire first, first step. I don't know if I answered your question. I could elaborate. We're working on white papers on this right now, but there are a lot of other people doing it as well. Well, thank, thanks for your answer. I, I don't expect you to solve the problem tonight. <laughs> thanks for your ideas. Right.
0: Any uh, questions or comments from uh, other uh, participants? While we're waiting, David, I've I've been uh, impressed, inspired with the number of uh, longstanding and relatively new uh, Jewish human rights and, and, and peace activist uh, groups. Uh, I mean, just uh, yesterday I was uh, reading a statement by uh, Yesh Din, uh, who along with Beth Salem, a longstanding Jewish Human Rights Organization, have been focused on settler takeovers of, I think, more than 10 uh, small Palestinian towns in the West Bank. Uh, While the focus is on Gaza, feeling that there's an opportunity and there will be a lack of state reaction uh, so they can just move uh, Palestinians off their land. Uh, Can you comment, uh, I guess, a bit about the new threats to the West Bank, as well as uh, perhaps some hope that we find also in uh, Jewish uh, Israeli uh, human rights and and peace groups.
1: Well, yeah, thanks. It's it, it's it, it's hard to forecast. I mean, you can see see a doomsday solution um, first of all. When you have times of of national crisis, you have people who use the situation to pursue their own political objectives, okay? This, again, uh, Saddam Hussein, no one said he was a good guy, but he was not responsible for the 9-11 terrorist attacks, nor did he actually have weapons of mass destruction. But there was a dedicated group who pursued that path. After the 9-11 attacks, that was was the window. I bring that up again. I I don't like comparisons they are not normal, but that is one that Americans are familiar with. There is a um, powerful settlement, settler movement in Israel, as you know. Um, Two of the most notable members of Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet responsible for security and for taxation. This is before October 7th. Uh, were openly calling for population transfers. They have. Um, there's no reason to believe that they are going to stop doing that after the terrible attacks of 10/7, because now they will. They there will be a logical um, argument made that the only way Israel is safe is if the Palestinian populations are removed altogether. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I don't think the world. Uh, population would would allow that. I also don't think the population in Israel necessarily would allow that. Certainly there'd be an uproar uh, among the American Jewish community, many of whom have been the most active and outspoken uh, advocates of a two-state solution and peace process um, over the last 20 to 30 years. Great, thank you. Uh,
0: we're Coming to the end of our time, any uh, final comments or questions for David?
3: Um, Hi. Sorry, I do have a question. Uh, Hi, David. How are you? Good. How are you, me? Good, thanks. Um, I just want to thank Interfaith Action for putting this panel together. I think it's extremely important uh, to have these discussions and um, so I, th- I thank you for putting it together. Um, my question is, David, you know, you were saying when you were talking earlier that the, one of the biggest interests for the U.S. is uh, Israel's security. And, you know, I think it's I think, you know, it, it, it must be obvious to Israel as well as the U.S. that what happened on October 7th, the Hamas attack, showed that there is no uh, real security for Israel. Um, Gideon Levy, the Israeli journalist for Haaretz, he had a video saying that he thinks, as far as he's concerned, the two-state solution is dead because of all the settlements. There are seven hundred thousand settlements, <clears throat> and according to him, they, you know, they won't be able to remove those settlements ever. So he he his um uh, opinion is that there is only one solution which is a one state solution moving forward and i just wanted to get your thoughts opinion on the possibility of a one state solution whether israel would ever go for a one state solution and whether the us would be willing to push for a one state solution for security for the you know for the full security of israel moving forward and um yeah and he says you know one state solution with equal rights right for everyone, israelis and palestinians thank you So
1: you know well thanks for the question i mean i i think there are some palestinians who who have said similarly you know we'll forget about the two state solution because at this point we can't have a one contiguous state you're talking about two enclaves where we never have control of security or anything else we'd rather wait it out. And um, if Israel is going to be a democracy, eventually there will be more Palestinians in it than there are um, Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis. So <clears throat> it's, it's there are some who say that that would be the best path because we'd have more of a say in what the government of Israel um, does. That said, Uh, And I think the Americans, if there was support on the Palestinian and Israeli side, would be fine with that. I don't think Americans are fixed on one solution. They just want the problem to go away, frankly, to be blunt. Um, The problem is, polls have consistently shown that is not a popular idea among Palestinians or Israelis at this point. So um, if, unless there was a consensus on both sides that this is the best path path forward it's a non-starter um even if the populations are so mingled at this point that it's hard um to separate so that's that's the quick answer and i know um there are those who who say again uh if israel was a if it was a one state solution then there'd be some choices about what democracy actually means Uh, but that would then go to the nature of what the israeli state is is it a secular democracy or is it a Jewish state? Can it be both?
0: David, uh, thank you so much for sharing your uh, insights, your uh, expertise, uh, and for staying up well past midnight uh, to join in the, this conversation. Uh, we also, I mean, thank you for your work. Uh, again, as I said earlier, in the in the spirit of the... Uh, French priest uh, Louis Massignon to be a prophet of of dialogue and uh, an actor on behalf of of peace and uh, dignity and rights. Uh, We're grateful for your work in that area. And we pledge that we as an interfaith community here in uh, Southwest Michigan, uh, uphold those values and those uh, commitments in our portfolio of action. Again, thanks to everyone for joining us this evening. Look forward to seeing you all uh, next Thursday, 6 p.m. for a conversation uh, around the media. Have a good night, everyone. Uh, Appreciate your time.